I'm Megan Rose Dickey. I'm Henry Picovet. This is Mixtape. Joining Megan and I today are Mara Mills, who's the Associate Professor of Media, Culture, and Communications at NYU, and the co-director of the NYU Center for Disability Studies. We're also joined by Meredith Whitaker. She's a co-founder of the AI Now Institute and the founder of Google's Open Research Group. We also have finally Sarah Hendren, who's a professor at Olin College of Engineering and the author of the recently published What Can a Body Do? How We Meet the Built World. And um, it was a it was an incredible conversation. It was a wide-ranging conversation about accessibility, disability, and artificial intelligence. And honestly, it really needs no other introduction. So let's just jump on in. Uh, I'm Sarah Hendren, and uh, I'm a design researcher and an artist and a writer, and I teach um, design and um, disability studies at Olin College of Engineering, which is outside Boston. I'm Meredith Whitaker. I'm a longtime tech worker, tech worker organizer. I'm the faculty director at the AI Now Institute at NYU, and I study corporate tech power, AI, and its social implications. I'm Mara Mills. I'm a historian, former biologist, and now media studies professor at New York University, where I co-founded and co-direct the Center for Disability Studies, and I um, do present day and historical work on tech and disability. I actually wanted to start this off with just talking about a little bit about theory and, and terminology. And I know that there's in general, like there's like the medical model when talking about disability and then there's the social model. And um, Sarah, maybe I was, yeah, if, if you wouldn't mind kind of breaking that, that down for us just to kind of kick things off. Yeah, I mean, this is a whole field of scholarship and disability studies and it's a useful, just those two concepts are still really useful and powerful as a an expansion of what a lot of people might think of when they think of the condition of disability. So in a medical model of disability, um, as articulated in disability studies, the idea is just that disability is a kind of condition or an impairment or a something that's going on with your body that takes it out of the normative average state of the body. So something in your sensory makeup or mobility or whatever is impaired and therefore the disability kind of lives on the body itself. But in a social model of disability, it's just an invitation to widen the aperture a little bit and include not just the body itself and what it, what it does or doesn't do biologically, but also the interaction between that body and the, and the normative shapes of the world. So what's happening between this body and this desk or this chair? So for instance, an easy way to think of it is um, if you're a wheelchair user and you're thinking in a medical model way, you're thinking about legs that don't walk down the street. But in the social model, you're thinking about what it means to be using a wheelchair in a world where most buildings are built with stairs instead of with ramps. So now the onus is actually the location of where the challenge is, is not entirely clear. That means that, so maybe it's the body that's looking for uh, a kind of way to meet the world a little bit better, but maybe in a social model of disability, that's a question for the world to rethink its own, its structure. So maybe the architecture, maybe the, the lay of the street, but also maybe software products, hardware products, maybe it's actually the shapes of the world that need to actually come into play. So a, a medical versus a social model helps us just think about disability a lot more richly, where it lives and then what, it, what those next questions might be, certainly in the realm of tech. And it sounds like, I mean, that the, the social model is kind of, it's kind of become the new, I guess, standard way of, of thinking about disability and talking about that. Is, is that accurate to say? 
I mean, it's this is Mara, and I would say it's standard to the point that it's built into like um, World Health Organization manuals and pamphlets. And there are radical disability activists who are trying to think beyond the social model to, you know, polit more politicized models um, to models that account for um, things like pain and fatigue that are harder to describe with the social model. So yes, the social model has actually become entrenched in even in certain medical and, and insurance and like governmental discourses, which is good. It's a, it's a, it's a really important move beyond the medical model, but there, um, there are a lot of activists who think we need to go even further. And yet, I think this is Sarah again, there are still a lot of ways in which outside of those activist circles and outside of kind of institutions, that medical model still persists in a lot of our popular media, a lot of our common speech that we hear, um, the way that we talk about what happens to us when our bodies change. A lot of times still in popular culture, certainly in this country, people still talk about it as like this body and how I'm gonna overcome it, right? Rather than ask the world in a richer set of questions, what's a desirable world that I can live in? What's a life worth living no matter what the state of my body? So it's interesting how, right, as Mara says so well, it's an expanded and expanding view of, of where disability lives. And yet those old ideas are still with us. Mm -hmm. I think um, this is Mara again, just to respond to Sarah, who I always have such good conversations with um, <laughs> and the love and love talking to you about ideas um, at, you know, the medical model, the problems with it are that it's also radically individualizing um, and it doesn't see disability as itself possibly a culture or a form of world making. You know, um, the social model and disability activism around the social model imagines disability as a coalitional category, kind of like something like queer, a dis an umbrella category, and a culture, and um, you know, a culture with history and art and a whole social sphere. And that is really something that's harder to imagine with the medical model. And, it, it, and I think you're right, Sarah, that the popular imaginary tends to radically individualize and pathologize disability. Yeah, and uh, the, this is Megan speaking. And so one last thing, just kind of on, on theory and like terminology, I mean, so I think just also over the years, I've, I've kind of noticed some of the, just like the rhetoric go from, okay, like disabled people to people with disabilities, and then actually, okay, no, disabled people is what is, I guess, like the, the better thing to say. And um, yeah, Mara, you're kind of nodding your head about that. Yeah, would you, would you kind of mind uh, kind of breaking that down for us as well? It's going to depend on, you know, um, it, it, there's not even an, a standard Anglophone way to use this phrase. I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it, Sarah, in Canada, it's still people first language, but in US disability activism, disability first language is preferred and has been for quite a while. There's a wonderful book by activist Simi Linton called Claiming Disability that explains how disability first language came about and why it's important. And it's partly about not, you know, destigmatizing disability. The, you know, there's a whole campaign, a hashtag campaign on Twitter called say the word, mm -hmm. you know, like there's no shame around the word disability and let's destigmatize that term. And, and having disability first language is also again, coalitional. Yeah, and I think this is Sarah speaking. I think, you know, it proceeds from that social model, right? So it makes sense to say we're disabled people and with pride, which is not to say, I'm disabled because there's something wrong with my body. I'm disabled by a world that doesn't allow me to thrive in this body that I'm in, right? So 
in Simi Linton's book, as Mara said, I mean, there's this way in which disabled people looked around and saw if we organize ourselves by this commonly held conundrum, which is to say the world is built with a kind of rigidity about it that doesn't allow different bodies to thrive, that means that not all disability is the same. It means that being disabled people is a political, strategic, organizing way of talking about each other. I want to just add, though, too, for listeners who are new to this, that you shouldn't actually, I think, uh, get caught up in what is the right thing to say and, and let that obsession um, bar you from getting interested in disability because really what matters is your intention and context. So if you're worried about language, that's it's really not the point so much when we're talking about some urgent rights issues and employment and, and accessibility and so on. So language is one way of thinking about how we talk about one another and it does matter. And yet the best you can do is to ask people how it is they like to be spoken about and spoken to. It's really a matter of, of kind of ordinary humility and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and treating people with dignity. What do you all think, but keeping with the, um, this is Henry, keeping with the um, social model and tech companies, just like do a sharp left turn to tech. Um, what, um, <laughs> do you think they get it? Like we're thinking, talk about the medical versus the, the social and, and making things easier for disabled people to get around. But when they're baking this social idea into their, whether it's technology and AI system, um, whatever it is, and, and, uh, and technically tech is life, right? So anything that we do involves some form of technology, whether it's also, I guess, design, landscape design, architecture, all of that. How, how close are these two points to being connected to where we have this like, seamless way of living for all of us? Meredith here, um, having spent many, many years inside tech companies, I think the first frame I'd want to offer is that we need to see these companies as companies, they're corporations, their business model is to expand revenue increasingly forever. That is the logic that governs what they do. And that governs the products and the services that they produce. So they certainly have sort of ability or assistive technology divisions or departments, usually these are put in a position of sort of trying to influence or almost lobby the teams that have power in engineering and in products who are creating products. And a lot of times the lobbying they do or the way they try to, you know, entice or incent others to make their products more accessible is to argue that this is sort of a market, right? And that there are, you know, there's more ways to reach people. You'll be doing good while making money. You know, here is here is an approach to building technology that can scale even better and, you know, meet your quarterly goals even better. But I don't, you know, this is not pivoting on the sort of discursive difference between, you know, the, the medical or the social model, although it, it consistently replicates the medical model. So what you see is, you know, and I think I think both Sarah and Mara can talk in depth about this, you see technologies coming out of these companies that are often explicitly designed to sort of coach people who they assume to be disabled to be act more non-disabled. So, you know, technologies that are targeted to people with autism spectrum disorder to, you know, help them make eye contact or help them smile more, right? And then they will give you a score based on, you know, the movement of your face or the way the eye tracking technology in your camera detects your eyes on the screen, which will, of course, work differently for different people with different complexions and you know, different bodies. But these are meant to sort of bring people in line with a normative model of ability that is, of course, you know, created in the image of a kind of industrial 
capitalist subject who is able to consistently produce. So um, there's a lot to unpack there, but I don't, you know, I would say that they are always driven by the model of capitalist incentives. And then they will, you know, shoehorn whatever model of humanity or subjectivity into that model in order to, you know, continue scaling their product. Uh, and also perhaps <laughs> when it's convenient. And, yeah, it's convenient and it's good marketing and, and also right. things, to yeah. jump in. I would say, obviously, the technology is as big of an umbrella as disability is. And there are some, you know, there's mm -hmm. medical technologies that are squarely within the medical model. And the goal of those technologies is cure you know, not just accommodation, but total cure. And then there are technologies and companies and also individual inventors who, who are working more in the social model in the sense that they're not trying to transform an individual body. They're trying to transform the world and create an accommodation. And yet they still tend to have fundamentally normative or mainstream ideas of function and participation rather than disability forward ideas. And I was thinking about this a lot last week at the SiteTech Global Conference, there was a panel with, um, uh, I can't remember the panel, but with a number of um, blind engineers on it talking about what they were looking forward to with AI. And there were a couple of people who wanted more, a more tactile world. They wanted technology with more tactile interfaces, a blind way and a tactile way of doing things. And there were other people who were looking for speech um, interfaces or, or having computer vision replace human vision, which is a much more normative or mainstream use of the technology. So, you know, the, you know, the question with, with AI and, and also just with, you know, old um, mechanical things like brailers would, I would say would be, are we aiming to perceive the world in different ways, in blind ways? in minoritarian ways, or is the goal of the technology, even if it's about making a social infrastructural change, still about something, you know, standard or normative or seemingly typical. Um, and, and that's, that there are very few technologies probably for financial reasons that are really going for the disability forward design. Mm -hmm. Can I just jump in here with the sort of mm -hmm. mention of AI? Because I love that point. And I think there's like a a kind of fundamental you know, truth to the, the way that AI works now. And I'm using AI to mean, you know, particularly machine learning, that's the buzzword that we're using kind of to a catch all for these types of technological capabilities. Um, you know, but AI itself is fundamentally normative. It draws conclusions from large sets of data and that's the world it sees, right? And it looks at what's most average in this data and what's an outlier. So it's something that is consistently replicating these norms, right? If it, it you know, it's, it's trained on the data and then it gets, you know, an impression from the world that doesn't match the data it's already seen, that impression is gonna be an outlier. It won't recognize that, it won't know how to treat that, right? And there are a lot of complexities here, but I think, I think that's something we have to keep in mind as sort of a, a, the nucleus of this technology when we talk about its potential applications in and out of these sort of capitalist incentives, like what is it capable of doing? What, is it, what does it do? What does it act like? And can we think about it you know, ever possibly encompassing, uh, encompassing the multifarious, you know, huge amounts of ways that um, disability manifests or doesn't manifest? And I, you know, this is again, things that I've learned a lot from Sarah and Mara and other disability scholars about, but I think it, it gets to one of the fundamental tensions in the bias debate in the sort of debate over classification in general and the way these systems um, sort of replicate and perpetuate those classifications. Yeah, and Meredith, I've been wanting, this is Sarah speaking, I've, I've been wanting to ask you about this very thing for a while. And I think about historians of 
mathematics and science, think of Ted Porter's book called Trust in Numbers. And he just says fundamentally that numbers and quantification is it's a technology of distance. It's distancing just by its very nature, right? And so Meredith, when you think about what AI can and cannot do, what's the right frame for us to be thinking about those kinds of different categories? Like, as you say, and in, in this report that, that AI now produced on disability bias in AI, there, you know, there were there were use cases in that in that report about things like, um, you, you know, including uh, pedestrians using wheelchairs in, um, you know, the kind of vision algorithms for self-driving vehicles, for example, right? Like in the exclusion of wheelchairs for pedestrians has, you know, drastic effects. And so then this idea of like, oh, well, let's just make sure that we have a category of wheelchair use in pedestrian kind of categories. Okay, now, now that's gonna be fixed, right? But as I understand it, Meredith, I mean, that report draws the conclusion that, but no, the centering work and the kind of averaging work of AI itself still serves to harden those categories by trying to, you can bring in some more, but it's still then making sharper boundaries with outliers, right? Okay. So in other words, it has that distancing effect. If we know that the human experience is, a, is, a, is primarily, you know, a, a highly localized and particular thing, is AI just, do we just think about when and where AI systems are gonna be useful and then just categorically, you know, to keep them out of other aspects of our lives? Like, how do you think about this? I mean, I, I don't have like one weird trick, clear answers to a lot of this. I Like my work is I just struggle with it a lot and talk to people. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I think that's, I, th I certainly think we need the right to say no to this technology. The right of refusal is fundamental. And, and at this point, given the way this technology works, it's, you know, it is built by large tech companies. It's dependent on the infrastructure of a handful of large companies. It is then sold usually to institutions or businesses and sort of used on the back end, as I usually call it, you know, to, to automate different decisions or tasks or predictions. But it's not something, you know, the, the idea of the user sort of falls away in this in this uh, in this frame because they're you know it's not something we the classified are sort of choosing to do it's something that's kind of done to us and I think that distance is really good to keep in mind it doesn't mean that there aren't sort of you know interesting radical community driven efforts to sort of collect data to better understand ourselves to use statistical and potentially even machine learning techniques to do it um, there's a whole issue around how expensive that is and how impossible it is to sort of scale those things without the type of capital that is afforded to tech companies. Um, but I think, yeah, I think, I think those are all kind of a nexus of issues to consider when considering what this technology does and who it does it for. Because there's another element here, and I think sort of building on Ted Porter, like the, you know, the collection of this kind of data and the, you know, schematizing it in a category is always surveillance. I think that's something AI is built and requires surveillance. And it's a sort of, you know, it is, it is the impression or the perspective or the gaze of whoever the person in power, whoever is classifying and whatever, you know, whatever their impression of the person or the object or the thing they are, you know, classifying. So, you know, you can imagine a whole data set of wheelchair users, but then, you know, there is another type of wheelchair or another you know, way of using wheelchairs. And we have a, an example in the report from Yuta Trevarius around someone who you know, is more comfortable riding backward in their wheelchair and the machine learning algorithm just doesn't get that because they may have had you know, a million examples of wheelchairs going forward, but they didn't get one going backward and that's the one that breaks it, right? So um, yeah, I think, I think those collections of like, you know, who's, 
whose view is reflected in the data and what are the power relationships that are really important. Um, this is Mara. I just wanted to respond to the thing you said about um, the right to say no. And, and you know, at the, at the place where algorithms or codex, just in terms of AI, intersect with international standards, um, it actually becomes very difficult for an individual person to say no. Um, or even to have a vote in a democratic process, because you know most standards today and for the last few decades have been, are set by private bodies, financed by industry, not by not by governments. Um, this is true. I mean, and and this is goes way beyond things like algorithms and codex, like the MP3 or something. But it, it goes back to things like setting standards for like um, the normal curve for hearing that's built into things like the MP3. Then. But you know, I think most people hear like ISO, International um, or Standards Organization, and think, oh, it's a governmental body. They don't realize it's like professional societies and trade organizations. It's financed by industry. And so this is what those of us in science and technology studies who study standards, including algorithms that become standards, call like governance without government. Mm -hmm or soft law, and it's, it's really hard then to say no. And standards become ubiquitous and become international way faster than old fashioned social norms do. They can happen overnight. It can happen really, really quickly. Um, so it's, you know, just the, the like disseminate, the speed of dissemination and like the, the expanse of it and the fact that it's like industry financed and then, but, and then yet it becomes a standard across, you know, maybe many different kinds of systems. It's, and, and there's no way for people to have a vote. Everyday people to have a vote is quite, can be quite um, scary and hard to figure out how to say no to. Um, the other quick thing I was just gonna say about this autonomous vehicle and wheelchair user crossing the street um, example is just, it gets at the question of how internally diverse the category of disability is. And that's a very big, it makes it an, an exciting problem for people in STS and for disability activists, but a very intractable difficulty for designers and engineers, because you might have blind, you know, people have conflicting often accommodations with other user groups. So many blind people might say, oh, we want the safety and independence of an autonomous vehicle. And then other user groups might have more of a fear that an, auto an autonomous vehicle won't recognize them as a human being um, um, when they're not in the vehicle. So, you know, disability is just so internally diverse. It's universal, the prospects of universal design are, uh, it, it, universal design is not gonna, is, is um, an ever receding horizon. It's impossible to achieve and when, <laughs> And in, it's, it's, and also disability changes over time and human beings and populations, we change with technology. So there's not gonna be like a, a not, not only a universal design, but like a quick fix that comes in and changes everything because we will change and the population changes over time. Mm -hmm. um, one example of this, I think in the US is just blindness. You know, blindness, when people hear that word, they think, oh, this is an old, old category, but blindness has changed. Um, the, you know, blindness used to be considered an ocular phenomenon, but um, you know, many of the diseases um, and impairment and the injuries that caused blindness in the past have been eradicated by technology and by medical technology and new impairments, again, caused by technology, for instance, technologies that sustain premature um, infants have caused a new form of blindness, which is located in the brain, not in the eye. So most blind Americans today call themselves blind, but would have CVI or cortical visual impairment. And that's a totally different, it's a new and different 
category of disability and whatever new technologies are coming in the future are going to generate new categories of disability too and change older ones. So like, there's not going to be a, a universal design or a quick fix. Yeah. I mean, this is Sarah, I just, um, just to underline that so much that disability like other marginalized identities is not a monolithic category and it requires us to be disciplined and specific about how we understand it, including, it seems to me, an, an understanding of cure and of uh, mitigation when it's wanted. So for instance, that panel, Mara, that you saw at Site Tech, you know, of blind engineers working on in a quite, with a quite optimistic view, right, about what technology could do and make possible. And I think about plenty of disabled friends of mine who, for example, would, would call the, their smartphone and the, the speech to text um, kind of fidelity these days as quite transformative in their lives. And I guess I just wanna give some, some words to that and some credence to that. I think it's, it, we can find all kinds of things that we're worried about. And yet there are some things that are quite striking in their, in their, the power, the, their, the, in their arrival um, to the scene. And I, and I guess I wanna ask this of Meredith too. Like I'm, I'm thinking about my own son who's 14, his name's Graham and he has Down syndrome. And I'm thinking about the, the uses of autocomplete software um, for sort of language processing in email that I see him doing in Gmail. I see him using it well, right? I see him both taking in, replicating, learning from, getting more adept at, the kinds of things that he does want to say, but that are difficult to get both just from his head out onto um, a keyboard, either with the low muscle tone that's in his mouth structure, but also the, this, the sort of motor form of typing, in addition to kind of like normative speech. And he may want, normative and normalizing speech to be in his life, right? And I think it's wrong for me to intervene and say, no, no, we reject all forms of normalcy in that way. And so, right, what's the, what's the situation here? Well, the economic model of Gmail is that we are trading convenience for privacy, right? So we have no say over who's using all those kinds of things. But Meredith, what do you say when I, I'm thinking, I want software engineers to make a richer job landscape, for example, possibly you know, made available to people like Graham, if he wants it, what is the answer then about how I, like, I don't have an Alexa in my house because I don't want to make that compromise. He would like nothing better. And in fact, it would be a form of access for him. But I'm stuck now, you know, in these kind of, in the economic model. So what do you say to people about that, Meredith? Is it like, well, you, you trash your economic model and start over, you build slow growth companies? What is the, what's the AI scenario there? Yeah, I mean, I, as someone, I'm severely dyslexic and learned to spell a little bit through Microsoft Word spell check back in the day. Um, and so I really yeah. relate to that. Like it, you know, it, I wouldn't have been able to take tests in the same way I could if I didn't have that. Um, it happened to just work for me. So I want to, I want to make a lot of room for that, right? Like these things can be very helpful. We are recording a Zoom on one of these things, right? Um, and I think, you know, this is sort of, I guess my answer is similar to the answer when people say like, so should we just all quit Facebook, right? Like this isn't an individualized issue, right? Like the embedded in this are the sort of power dynamics that are at work between the tech companies and the way that these systems are consistently calibrated you know, for whatever incentives they have. And we have a good idea of what those are. And the fact that, you know, one day they could just change that system entirely and Graham, you know, might not have access to it, right? I think there are there are deeper issues as well around the way you know large scale language models are trained, the type of language those reflect back, and the the norms there specifically in non anglophone languages, and you know who that who those types of assistants 
technologies are accessible to. I think we also need to remember that Amazon complied with at least 2,000 warrants for Alexa recordings last year, and we don't know about the ones they didn't you know, report on their transparency report. So, you know, I, there is an uneasy answer here, but I don't, it's not a matter of sort of individual righteousness, right? These are structural issues and they're complex, but we shouldn't, you know, I, I don't know, my politics are just like, you don't deny yourself the help you can get from the imperfect world we bump up against. But we do recognize that there are forces at work in sort of offering the choices we have here. And, you know, we try to make little bits of joy where we can when we interface with this world. <laughs> this is what place probably education too, where legislation is more important than technology. And um, I've learned so much from my colleagues who are historians of workers comp, who explain why is it in the United States that so many disabled Americans are unemployed and have been unemployed for a hundred years, despite like many changes in technology that would and and that would enable people to actually enter or seemingly enable people um, to enter the workforce. For instance, mechanization and automation, and and it's an irony of legislation that disabled people used to be used to fill all sorts of workplaces in the early industrial and agrarian economies, and then because of lawsuits, this is goes beyond the US, but I'll just tell the US story of people getting injured at the workplace in order to protect injured workers and give them compensation, statewide and the national workers comp laws were passed. But then companies responded by deciding that disabled people were too great of a risk and too expensive. And they were likely to incur future expensive work more likely than a non-disabled employee to incur future costs. So they started screening employees for disabilities and that started in the 19-teens in the US. And there was, and Sarah Rose, who's a historian of this, has shown there was a radical drop in the numbers of disabled people in the workplace. And, it, and that it's never changed. A hundred years later, it's totally, the, the numbers are the same. It's never changed. And technology has changed a lot in the meantime. So I'm, right. you know, we may have radical changes in technology that would seemingly enable anyone to work, but the, will employers, <laughs> hire them well what <laughs> and legislation has to change society has to change but the law has to change too and well some of this legislation this is sarah is i mean I, I won't dwell on it too much but the sheltered workshops which have been places where people like my son graham would have been historically working for, you know under the what's the law um mara the fair employment act i mean it's like it's a mid mid 20th century law that made it possible to pay less than minimum wage to people with disabilities. It was kind of designed for disabled veterans, blah, blah. So people like my son, Graham, would often go to these sheltered workshops which were safe kind of working environments, doing manual tasks and so on for under minimum wage. And they've now been, they were declared unconstitutional under the Obama administration. And so it's interesting because now those are being closed down under the rubric of inclusion, right? Like, so to, to bring people to both a fair wage and also to the public sphere in which to have their jobs. And so this is where I am thinking, I'm so glad for that history, Mara, and I am thinking about, okay, so what then makes it possible for Graham, not just legally, but meaningfully to then interact? What are the, the technological bridges is what I'm asking, depending again on what it is that he wants. So it's just such a, um, it's just such a rich, um, contestational space and I'm glad we've represented that here because it can be easy to sort of either take um, take sort of shots at a medical model alone and just you know want this kind of social model and yet there are all these it's just what Mara said the multiplicity of both wishes and needs 
wanted to circle back to a little bit around uh, artificial intelligence. And I mean, you all were just like talking about the just like the, the intersectional identities of, of disabled people, like just even within the disabled community, the the vast um, the vast differences in experiences and actual like individual disabilities. And then of course you also consider the fact that like, okay, like some some disabled people are also people of color and there have also been issues around like AI and like not seeing people with darker skin tones. And there are just so there are just like endless possibilities of identities. And I mean, I I mean, yeah, I mean I guess the other question is, I mean, how what is the solution to actually solving for, to actually really making sure that like these companies take this really like disability forward approach and like identity forward approach, just like with, of all the varying identities, like how do you account for that? And I'm not, I'm not sure if there is an answer, but <laughs> Meredith, I'll, I'll toss that to you. Yeah, I, again, I don't, don't have a pat answer and I'd really love to hear what Sarah and Mara have to say on this as well, because I think, you know, we are recording this at the end of a week and a half where we've seen some of these issues sort of explode from within Google after Timnit Gebru, who is one of their sort of, you know, an absolutely brilliant human being who has done a lot to fight for these issues, has done some of the foundational research that was able to look at the way specifically machine vision, facial recognition, misclassified and, you know, failed to recognize people with darker skin tones. Um, and this, you know, this pattern has been shown over and over again in different forms of artificial intelligence. So, you know, speech recognition systems recognize people with accents less well than people with, you know, I'm doing scare quotes for the people on, uh, on who are listening, you know, people with normal accents, right? Again, it's this normative model. They recognize, you know, deeper voices and, and high-pitched voices uh, less well, right? This sort of feminized bias. And I think this is you know, what we are running into right now is the fact that machine learning that draws on the data from the past persistently and always will replicate patterns of discrimination that exist in that history. And so what do we do with that? Well, we can try to scrub these data sets and be like, okay, we're making these classific, you know, we're, we're adding more images of people with darker skin. And then now we have facial recognition used by the police that recognizes absolutely everyone, right? But does that actually deal with the problem of now we have sort of a, a mass surveillance system that is exacerbating inequality and power differentials and sort of you know racialized violence right um so i think i think that it's a complex problem and it's not actually located in the technology right it's located in the fact that this technology draws from kind of normalizes and then amplifies the sort of histories of these 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 histories and these sort of patterns in ways that you know can't be it, it, it can't be corrected if we just focus on the technology. If we want to, you know, if we want to work on, you know, criminal justice, we have to transform policing, right? Um, some would say abolish policing, right? If we want to improve, you know, lives of uh, the lives of disabled people, we have to talk with disabled people and say, what would that look like, right? And it may not be technological, but it's not. It's not going. You know, there isn't going to be one weird bias fixing. You know, kind of step that these companies can take. And I think what we just saw is there are people inside these companies saying that, and these companies are saying like, no, actually we can't include that perspective, right? Um, and that's, you know, I think we're at a point in this field, this broad field of people who think about and talk about these issues where we're, we're really coming to like, okay, what does it mean to sort of look at these technologies and, and look at these histories and how do we, you know, approach our work um, given, 
given what just happened there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pass the question to others now, but I, I, that would be my first approach. I wonder, this is Sarah, I mean, I'm just thinking about one of the use cases in the report that AI Now put out is about um, the use of AI, and Meredith mentioned it before, about the kinds of facial cues and things that a, an AI-assisted kind of pre-screening job interview process is creating, and the way that those, all the problematic ways in which the machine is trained, right, not on the machine's problems, but as Meredith said, on these kind of, these, these kind of preconceived notions about what constitutes a good employee, right? Who's going to thrive in a workplace? What are the kinds of affective and also cognitive qualities that we assume are going to be the kind of people who make companies into good places to work, right? Like that's a huge set of cultural ideas. And it's interesting in the disability space, there have been very successful um, uh, sort of organized um, IT companies and consultancies, for example, that are staffed almost entirely with people on the autism spectrum. And they were designed that way. In other words, all of the interactions between IT consultant and client are prefaced with this idea that you will you may not have a normative social interaction with your consultant, but you will have a, a high quality interaction around the kind of services that we're trying to get done. And the kind of just reshaping, and it's not rocket science, it's a kind of reshaping about who works here and under what auspices, and also what counts again as a good thriving employee. And, and those, those consultancies, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, Mara and Meredith in the understanding, but those consultancies are changing what it means to be, um, to, to thrive at work. So then, then we're at, in, a, in a model where we're not thinking about so much of what, what the technology does or does not do, but about who's working and where and when and why and how, and the kind of room we can make for all of our professional interactions. Is, that's what you mean a little bit, right, Meredith? Looking behind the, looking at the signal yeah. behind the signal of the tech, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I, I think absolutely. And what you just described, describes a model that, you know, in my understanding of it, it sort of works with people to see, you know, is there a way we can sort of, you know, provide you this job and, you know, without the, kind of normative social interactions that go along with what it means to be a professional in, you know, 2020 uh, in an office place. So I think, I think those types of interventions make a lot of sense. I think, you know, when we're talking about the sort of hiring screening software that's built on a model of a, a great employee at a highly non-diverse firm, you're in a totally, you know, you're in a kind of, you know, you're replicating those patterns, those discriminatory logics, and you're replicating sort of the, the logics of kind of eugenics and physiognomy that sees people's character reflected in their bodies and their faces and makes conclusions about their worth and ability based on those things. And, and that's a, that is a dangerous confluence. Yeah, this is Mara. And I would, I would just say that, you know, AI applications, just like any computational or electronic technology, like going back to the middle of the 20th century, these are, you know, they're made up of many com separate components and they're layered and at each layer there's there's places where bias can seep in and so it's you know one has to think about the data set one has to think about the algorithms and what tasks they're being asked to do what steps they're being asked to enact and also just the interface design and you know it's hard to get all of those things right and I completely agree with Meredith and Sarah that it's you know it's not enough just to bring to have disabled people be test subjects who like hang out like for three visits to a lab 
um, or, you know, it, it, having a really diverse um, staff of designers and engineers is, who are in, there for the long term and can, and can work on maintenance and redesign is really important and just changing the imaginary of the company. Um, I think on the other end, there is an issue with pricing. I mean, as a historian, I've done a lot of work where we've, I've seen engineers and inventors talk about things like necessity being the mother of invention and disability being the source of invention for technology, whether it's Alexander Graham Bell and the telephone or like Ray Kurzweil and OCR, he worked with the National Federation for the Blind. And many of those people genuinely did intend to create a technology related to disability in the beginning. There's other people who just rhetorically use disability as Meredith said, as a like for corporate goodwill or as an advertising strategy. Um, but there are some people who genuinely did intend their device to have something to do with disability in the, in the beginning days. But um, in the marketing stage, disability and dis disabled users tend to fall away if, if, and, and the device tends to be aimed toward mainstream audiences. Again, whether it's something like OCR or the telephone because it's, it's more profitable. And then those early users slash test subjects fall away. And in redesigns of the company, often you'll find like the interface isn't accessible anymore. And it's, so there's the like long life of, and the redesign aspects and the development aspects of a technology have to be attended to as well as that invention stage. And I think unless you have disabled designers or engineers on staff, they're not going to have that long horizon of working on a product. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And I mean, I think too, this is goes back to um, conversation before the podcast started, um, Henry and Megan, that we were having about um, whether this is a, a call for inclusion or not, right? And what people mean when they say inclusion. And I think maybe Mara underlines what you're talking about. And it has been dissatisfying to me for people to conclude from conversations about accessibility that the answer is to take this, you know, core of social and political goods and simply extend its canopy to include other people who thus far have been forgotten about or left behind when precisely the story that you tell Mara about the telephone, about OCR, these, these kinds of, it's very easy for them, those kind of inclusion efforts to fall away if they're thought to be useful for a time or thought to be kind of extra, you know, um, others who come in for certain reasons or not. And instead, I guess in my own work, I've been trying to ask people, instead of thinking about this um, kind of mission not to forget, to think with a different imagination about their own body, its contingencies, its frailties, its continual dependence on extensions and appendages of all kinds, and to locate their own bodiedness on a horizon that includes lots of kinds of bodies and lots of kinds of humanity. That, so that if we see ourselves as both needful on the receiving end of assistance and on the giving end of assistance, if we're lucky to be designers or tinkerers of any kind, on the receiving and the giving end, right? then our, in our mind's eye, our own bodies occupy those same political stakes. In other words, it doesn't have to be about how well or how, how effectual or for how long we include others, but instead that we find ourselves deeply connected in those, in the genuine stakes of what it means to be human, which just means to have needs, personal and political, bodied, affective, cognitive, all the rest, and to let needfulness be part of a desirable future. That's a different call, I think, than inclusion Mm -hmm. Yeah, inclusion without transformation is like such a seriously problematic yeah. discourse. Well, yeah, and it's like it's it's um 
I have like five points that I want to make and I'm not going to be able to make them. So we might, might cut this part off, but um, I'm going to go back to when, when Sarah, you were talking about Graham and um, his wanting or being able to benefit from something like um, um, an Echo and Alexa. And then Meredith, if you were saying, well, you know, if, if, if he wants to use it, this is what we have, you know, he should be able to use it. And then at the same time, I'm thinking, um, tech by its very nature is quick it's it's potentially fluid and people can fire up new designs new inventions um change this change that whether it's hardware or software um maybe people can can make it work better for them and so then that goes back to what you were just saying sarah about inclusive workforces and baking in from the beginning into the design um, something for everybody, not something for disabled people, not something for non-disabled people, but something for everybody. And um, this makes me think, um, Mara, I was watching your lecture that you gave last year in um, Brazil, and you mentioned this guy, Harvey Lauer, was that his mm -hmm. name? That was on the history um, of time stretching. Yeah, it was, like it was really the opposite of auto-tune, which more people have heard of, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it made me think, it was really cool because I, I, I promise I'm bringing this all home. Um, he he was what a late teen and he and his friends at the wisconsin institute We're didn't blind, want yeah. to who wants to do their homework no one <laughs> not, not everybody and they sped up the um they they listened i could let you tell a story if you want to but they basically as i understand it they had they this is where the the you call them audio they're like the early versions of audio books, which yeah, you know, talking people books. benefit from now, don't they? Talking books. That, that and, is what they were called by the American Foundation yeah, for the Blind, uh -huh. who partnered with RCA, like a major American tech mm. corporation in, of the 30s, before audio books about this, industry. Yeah, you were talking about the LP and, and 33 and a half speed, and they were speeding it up. And in and, um, and, and anyway, he, and it was a hack. It was Basically, a it was a hack, right? And and look and look where we are now with that. And so, if if taking all of this and you just bake into the very beginning of of an architecture or blueprint or or an AI or product, and it's like, how can this just help everybody do whatever they want? Um, I understand that perhaps we need to be more specific in certain applications of things for different differently able people, whether it's it's blindness or, or, or deafness or whatever. But um, I just feel like, especially if we just, I don't know, I don't want to blame HR, come HR departments across <laughs> the world, but, but um, maybe let's, let's, let's do better. I mean, I, I, I feel like everything can, we can just end it with like, let's do better. But I mean, it shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't be this hard and, and, and we need help basically. We don't, I don't know, we don't know everything. There has to be different funding structures. The Harvey example to me is a perfect one because he, you know, he had a master, he grew up in an instit, a state institution because blind people used to be by and large institutionalized. That was before mainstreaming. As you know, we, we historians tend not to look back at the history of institutions and think that any interesting scientific or educational or engineering work took place there, at those sites, but actually it, often it did. Um, my colleague Sue Schweik has been writing about um, anthropological excavations done in some of these institutions and Harvey and a bunch of his friends, many of whom left the institution and went to college were very smart and also didn't feel like doing certain kinds of homework. And so they were hacking into their record players to find ways to speed the machines up. And eventually 
the kind of work Harvey was doing later as an advocate and working as the tech transfer specialist for the VA caught the attention of um, engineers at MIT and elsewhere who um, developed the, the first devices for time stretching so that you could speed recordings up without having a change in pitch. And that's just ubiquitous in, in audio engineering now. But Harvey was really disappointed because he worked very closely with a company called Lexicon and wrote, like, wrote tested Lexicon on some of his vets who he worked with and wrote the user manual. And the eventually when it became mar really marketable, it, the second iteration of it, when it that hit the mass market, they just stopped having the component, it was a component that attached to tape recorders. They stopped having it attached to the tape recorders that blind people received for free from the National Library Service for the Blind. So it effectively became not usable by blind people. And, and the company really did forget about them because they just weren't profitable. So I guess, it's a, it's a, you know, there are, there's money from the National Institute for Health for orphan drugs, for, for drug development, for tiny groups of, of people with illnesses or disabilities that not many people have and that will never be profitable. But I don't think there is a, an equivalent kind of thing from like the National Science Foundation or whatever design funding. And we have, we have less national funding structures for design, I think, than like European countries. But there's no, there isn't really a good way to fund research on say like, purely tactile ob objects for, or uh, even or tactile interfaces for a small group of blind users. And that's that is where the problem you, you, they might inspire or collaborate with a non disabled user, but they just it's over and over again. I see this story happening where people get for, forgotten along the wayside. And if they're lucky, someone like Ray Kurzweil will donate some money for the, at the conference every year. I have a lot of stu college students who Kurzweil gave them a college scholarship. But, you know, the NFB funded his research. They helped him write the grants. They helped him get his start. And, you know, and he had, he's done a lot for that community. But on the other hand, they've been frustrated at how slow some of the image recognition devices have been, whereas a lot of what Kurzweil has done is, has flooded the mainstream market instead. So, yeah, I think fund, funding structures for research for small things with small audiences just have to change. This is madness, I would add like a huge plus 1000 to that. And just note that in AI research in particular, it's really imbricated with these companies because it's extraordinarily expensive. You need vast amounts of computational resources, which you sort of, you know, pay by the resource, right? Uh, and you need huge amounts of data that's like hard to get, or you end up getting kind of janky or suspicious data sets that are, you know, even more incomplete than what you might get at one of these companies. So the people doing this research are usually in elite labs and they're usually sort of tied to the interests of these companies. So Amazon donates a bunch of compute to Caltech or underwrites the AI research department at MIT or, or what have you, all of this is happening. And then the, you know, the shape of that research, the questions that it's possible to ask and the questions that don't get grant funding, you know, the, even the tooling and the interfaces for how you train and build an AI model, all of that is mediated by these large companies and has really narrowed what we're able to imagine with these technologies, you know, putting aside the limitations of the technologies themselves. And yeah, we need, we need to kind of expand funding for this research pretty profoundly because it's, it's you know, it shapes the public discourse, but is so clearly shaped and warped by these corporate interests. Um. Yeah, wow. Well, this has been a really wonderful conversation. And I just want to thank all of you so much for, for joining us. Yeah, um, this, is, yeah this has been great. 
I'm always happy to have a conversation to um, talk with Sarah and Meredith. Yeah, this has been a treat. I'm so, so glad to be here with you all. <laughs>